Greetings, devious dungeon masters. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim. I'm your dungeon master. I'm a dungeon master, and I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. So this is our fifth behind-the-screens episode, and we're talking about some stuff that's happened and some stuff that I'm planning. So if you are not interested in having some details spoiled for you, uh, skip over these episodes, skip over the ones that show up as behind-the-screen or campaign planning or both. But if you do want to follow along and hear my internal struggles and successes and failures, then yeah, you can listen to these episodes because that's what we're going to be talking about. Stuff that's happened, stuff that went well, stuff that went not so well, and uh, and stuff that I'm planning. Before we start, in case you haven't heard, there is a group specifically for... You know what, I've called it the Dungeon Master Only group. In hindsight, this is really a group for people who want to discuss all of these details that I talk about. So whether or not you're a Dungeon Master, you can go to Facebook and join, request to join this group. It's called the Dungeon Master Only group. But if you're keen on having a conversation or asking questions about certain things that I've planned, or if you want to help me because I ask for feedback on some stuff, you can join that group because I ask about... People's thoughts on certain things, I ask for feedback, and I always love it when people give me their ideas, help me improve my own, tell me, hey, Tim, that's not such a great idea, should do something else instead, dum-dum. Okay, enough chit-chat, let's get into it. Uh, Before we get through sort of a recap of the more recent episodes, the episodes since the last campaign planning episode... I wanted to talk for a moment about Thralls. Now, in case you haven't listened to, again, if if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the other campaign planning episodes, a lot was discussed in episode four. So if you haven't listened to the campaign planning episode number four, then definitely listen to that. Again, asterisk, if you want to know all the stuff that's going on. Anyways, yes, I wanted to talk for a moment about Thralls. Because it's going to come up, I think, I hope because I'm going to be foreshadowing a whole bunch of, in a a variety of different ways, that the players may start to suspect one or more NPCs of not really being what they think. They already think that Shigar may or may not be a doppelganger, we'll get to that in a little bit, but when I was reading up on Thralls, Mind Flayer Thralls, to be exact... It says that the Mind Flayers can basically rebuild a person's uh, character, a person's memories, their personality from scratch. And so when I was really starting at the outset of planning this campaign, I was asking myself, you know, what is going to stop any one of the players from getting, if they get suspicious, which they will, to stop them from rolling an insight check on things that Elwyn says? Because one successful insight check to, to say that, yeah, Elwyn is lying to you about this, the whole thing falls apart. I mean, really, the only way that I can get them to the point where they're going to get everything for this device is if they trust Elwyn. And so far, they have made several insight checks on him because he's very forgetful, or he seems to be very forgetful, and that's sort of a remnant of of his true personality still being intact in a little way and trying to break through his artificial self, if that makes sense. What I've decided is that it would really be best 
if the Thrall version of Elwyn doesn't consciously know that he is working for someone else, that he really truly believes that he is making this device for the purpose of getting Kalira back, and that everything he did was for for the good of the realm. Because if the player characters do get too suspicious, they might turn on him. And uh, I think that Vanna has a Zone of Truth as a spell, so there's, you know, there's a very real likelihood that they may at some point turn on Elwyn, use that spell to just to make sure that they can trust him. And for the wheels not to fall off of this thing that I'm planning altogether, then Elwyn needs to believe that he is who he thinks he is. So in short, the Mind Flayers are using him and he's obeying them, but even, even his obedient new personality is not totally aware, not aware at all, I should say, that he's being used. So it's a real neat way of getting around the, uh, the player characters getting a, a lucky natural 20 on an insight check and then me having to tell them that, yeah, this NPC who is kind of the linchpin of this whole thing is, is really lying to you. Anyways, enough about that. Let's get back to a quick recap. We'll start with part two of the ruins which was the group's fight against the Iron Titan prototype and some, some cleanup afterwards. So as far as the combat goes, I think it was tough, but it wasn't too tough. I really thought it was admirable that Faye was <laughs> admirable and, and maybe a bit foolhardy. But Candace was playing Faye accurately. She really wants to impress the group. And I think there's been a few moments in the campaign where Faye has gone a bit too far in certain ways in her quest to be taken as a real adventurer. That's her personal mission, is to be taken seriously. I did like Spruce's moment. Uh, I, I can't remember if it was in The Ruins Part 2 or if it was the following episode. I think it was the following episode. I won't kill you, but I don't have to save you sort of thing where he was, he was, he was talking to that monk that he had a tenuous connection to and basically didn't intervene to prevent Vanna from killing him. I thought it would have been funny. There's some hand-wringing about killing him when he regained consciousness, and I just thought it would have been funny if they tied him to the Iron Titan, because they knew that the thing was going to wake up eventually. Anyways. So yeah, the combat was tough, not too tough. It kept changing in a way that I was satisfied with. But no one made the connection that there was this item in the Iron Titan, the crystal. No one made the connection that the crystal was inside this thing that they were fighting, that Elwyn made, and no one thought, why didn't he tell us about this? So I thought that was interesting. I mean, there's a lot of detail going into this adventure, this whole thing. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally surprised that people didn't seem to pick up on it. But I was kind of hoping that somebody would, and that somebody would ask Elwyn, hey, what's the deal with that? Anyways, back to the monk for a moment. He's a member of a group called the Heralds of Ruin. He just, I think, referred to them as the Heralds. They're this apocalyptic group made up of a number of individuals, some of whom used to belong to Spruce's monastery. Uh, I'm not really sure yet how they're going to factor into the larger story. Uh, I'm thinking that they may have already, or are going to, forge an alliance with the Mind Flayers. Now, they're not thralls, but they're willing servants. That monk had holy symbols for a number of different evil gods. And the whole ethos of this group is that they're going to 
ally with whoever can help them bring about what they think to be the end of existence. So they're real opportunists. So in terms of working with the Mind Flayers, maybe they'll be a larger obstacle, this, this group, the Heralds of Ruin, maybe they'll be a larger obstacle closer to the end of the, of the campaign, we'll see. So they're not thralls, but they're willing servants. And if the player characters can come across a higher ranking member of that group, then maybe they can get more hints as to what is coming. As I've said before, I really do need to foreshadow this well enough that when the reveal comes of who's really pulling the strings, that it's not completely out of left field. With regards to episode 18, Take No Prisoners, uh, a lot of this was that unusual interrogation scene. I, I kind of wanted just an episode or a session that was kind of a breather uh, in between this fight they had with the Iron Titan and then what was coming next, because I knew I wanted to place Agarand in front of them before they got back to the surface. Not force them to fight him, but to present that as a possibility. So I wanted to have this session that was a bit of, like, no combat really, but mostly role-playing. I think I made the riddle for the mystery box too tough, because no one has yet solved it. I did put some really cool stuff in there. I mean, I thought for a while as to what I should put in there, and I wanted to give them some really neat stuff. And Tom said that he thought the, a potion of fire breath would work because the, the hint was fire from water. And I hadn't even considered that as a possibility, but I think if they manage to get their hands on another potion of fire breath, then I will probably let it work because the higher level, as they continue to gain levels, the stuff in the crate becomes less and less level appropriate. Episode 19, Rescue. Um, I did not expect them to try to rescue the captives. Uh, I had already planned out on what would happen if they did. I wanted a high-risk, high-reward situation. Now, they didn't know it was a high-risk, high-reward scenario, but I was happy that they did the rescue because, as I had said in an earlier campaign planning episodes, I typically have some trouble getting the players to invest in the well-being of NPCs. And in this case, they really risked a lot to save them. Now, I was kind of prepared, if they ended up fighting Agarand, I was kind of prepared for him to die, uh, that they might actually kill him, since that's usually the way it goes when you put a villain in front of your party. And that's exactly what happened with Mago, the doppelganger. And as I said before, they still think that Mago's alive. In episode 20, just jumping ahead for a moment, you can hear them ask themselves if Shigar could have been a doppelganger this whole time because Elasha asks Spruce if she thought anything was off. Now, of course, I'm foreshadowing a bit that Shigar is also a thrall, but the players are metagaming a little bit because at the beginning of episode 10, I did a little bit of a narration where Mago's body was brought before Erizax and he cast a spell. And the players think that Erizax resurrected him, but he only cast Speak with the Dead to learn who killed him. Agarin and Erizax are not the forgiving types, so they're not about to give a failure like Mago a second chance. But anyways, while we were playing this session, I was really nervous. I thought that it was basically a certainty that Faye's luck would run out and that she would be spotted, and the closer she got to Agarin and the further she got away from the party, the rest of the party, the, mo the more dangerous it was 
that a single bad roll would mean that she'd be spotted and that their entire plan would fail and that she would either become a prisoner or be killed. And I had to prepare myself for this possibility in a hurry. Again, I thought they were going to go the route of the black powder and cave in the tunnel and just leave. So when they decided, yeah, we're going to try this rescue mission, and, and when they said Faye's going to go off on her own, I really had to mentally prepare myself to let the players fail. After the combat in episode 13, I believe that was titled Dangerous Negotiations, we as a group had a discussion about being allowed to fail because uh, Tom, who plays Gilladob, thought that I had let them off easy, that I let them escape, and I think in some ways that he was right. That particular encounter had a number of poor decisions made by the players that put them in a very bad position, and it was only by my intervention as the dungeon master that all of them got out alive. I didn't really want to do that again, particularly if they are deliberately and willfully putting themselves at risk. Now, at one point in the rescue episode, Candace even says something like, the one thing you aren't supposed to do is split the party, but then they just do exactly that. So I was prepared to have a Dragonborn sentry sound the alarm and capture or even kill Faye, but I was, I was rolling very poorly, and she was rolling much better than I was, so it all worked out. I did kind of want the player characters to have a bit more of an interaction with Agarin, though I feel like they don't know him yet. I want him to, like, I want his character to come out a bit more before they fight him. I want him to taunt them, threaten them, just establish a bit more of a personal connection so that when they eventually fight, they'll have a bit more of a history between them than it being their first and last real encounter. And if he had killed one of the captives, if he had killed Warren the Deep Gnome or Ketvar, and if he had killed Faye, like that really would have made it personal when they fought. But, oh well. Episode 20, The New Alliance. I really wanted to give the players the feeling that the NPCs that they were helping was making a difference in the world around them. That the more they help people, the stronger a resistance against Agaran and the Dragonborn they are creating. I really wanted this to make them feel like heroes. And also, the trek underground was long and bleak at parts. So I didn't plan too much for them for this episode, so I, I mostly let the players steer the session, which I think turned out pretty well. And the Black Orb. At the end of episode 20, Tim Obermuller in the DM... I hope I'm pronouncing that last name correctly. I'm going to guess that I'm not, but anyways. Tim, part of the Dungeon Master group, guessed that it was maybe an illithid artifact. And that is more or less accurate. It's part of the Nautiloid. I thought it was going to... I thought uh, something, I believe, in my mind that helps it navigate and travel. And it can perform on its own. It can perform two spells, contact other plane, and plane shift. But as long as the interplanar barrier is in place, it won't be able to work all the time. I haven't yet determined how it will function. Now, it also allows the Elder Brain to make a mental link with whomever is attuned to it. I believe in episode 21, there's going to be a bit of reading of Warren's journal. There's a journal entry which details some of what happened and where it was found. There's also talk of a dragon sighting in this episode. This, of course, was a Gith airship, so I'm foreshadowing that a bit more. 
because the Gith are in the realm hunting mind flares. I think that's just about everything that, uh, that I wanted to talk about about those episodes, so let's talk about what's next. The next thing that the characters need are dragon bones. Now this part of the campaign is going to be a lot different for one very obvious reason. The pillar that they were going to to get the runes underground was in one fixed location, whereas the dragon bones present a different challenge. They're in a multitude of locations, meaning the players will have a variety of choices to make that I have to plan for. So this part of the campaign is much more nebulous compared to the previous leg, which was very linear. Now, as I'm preparing for this, I had to determine the various possible locations for the bones to be, and then plan ahead based on how likely I think the players are to pursue one location over another. So the most obvious locations are as follows. There's a city north of Pharaoh's Point called Boldbrook. I'd come up with this idea early on that there was a temple, a shrine, built around the bones of a metallic dragon. And the shrine was built by those who revered dragons, probably followers, worshippers of Bahamut. So the players are currently headed to Boldbrook since that's kind of a nexus, a centralized location where... There are dragon bones, but also probably knowledge held by a person or persons in or around the city about where and how to find more. Now, it's entirely possible that the party may steal the bones from the shrine to accomplish their task, but I'm hoping to add a few complications to this, which I'll get to shortly. So that's, that's the first option is this shrine, and there's a whole city built around the shrine, Boldbrook. That's the first location that is the most obvious. There are other grave sites. As mentioned in episode 20, there are places where a dragon or dragons have died that are very dangerous to travel to. The party knows the general area of these sites, but not the exact locations. So if they choose to go there, it will require some navigation, some exploration in a very dangerous environment. I thought it'd be interesting to basically have expanded, modified layer effects. So the innate magic of the dragons when they die has seeped into the landscape, imbuing an area the size of which I guess is dependent on how powerful the dragon was uh, with some kind of characteristics of their power. So a white dragon dying would create snow drifts and ice storms, things like that. Now, as of now, I have not planned very far in advance in this regard since I don't know whether the players will pursue this option at all. I'm going to put a, a much more obvious option in front of them and hope that they go for it, but ultimately the, the choice will be theirs. I also mentioned that giants have plundered some grave sites and are using dragon bones for their own purposes, uh, adornments, weapons, armor, things like that. Now, I chose giants instead of just humans or some other race because I've never really used giants in a campaign before, and I thought it would be an interesting part of the game if the party decided to to try to barter with or steal from a tribe of giants. Another option also that I mentioned that I don't think the players will view as a serious viable option would be to find individual adventurers who had managed to obtain smaller amounts of bone and sort of hoard those amounts until they have enough. I didn't mean for this to be taken as a serious option and I really highly doubt that they're going to that they're going to go for it, but narratively it's realistic so I figured I should probably include it. 
I think the most obvious choice, and the one that I'm going to do the most planning for, will revolve around the city of Bullbrook. The city was created around the shrine, and the entire city is controlled by the Temple of Bahamut, a strong group of clerics and paladins loyal to the dragons and very loyal to Kalira. Now, if they go for this choice, it will involve a moral dilemma of sorts for the player characters to work against a group that would otherwise be on their side. But with the stakes of failure being so high, I think it would be a choice that they would willingly make. You know, do we steal some bones from this temple for the purpose of saving the world or saving the realm? Like thousands and thousands of lives are at stake, even without them knowing about the Mind Flayers. The stakes are so high, I think it would be an easy choice to make. And certainly if I was playing the game, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? This has to be done. Even if I was a lawful good character, I think that they would eventually make that choice. Now, an earlier attempt of mine at creating this type of moral dilemma did not work out very well. This was when the party was helping Martin, the cloak. I wanted to have Thorn Twinhammer, Martin's lieutenant, offer them something in return for their help to help him work against Martin. Now, in the end, they never interacted with Thorn, so the occasion for this moral choice never materialized. I should mention that I had to create details about Boldbrook from scratch, as all DMs do at some point. There was a really great video by uh, Dale Kingsmill where she talks about creating a city, and something that was very memorable to me was something called the, you'll have to forgive me, the Sperm Principle, S-P-E-R-M. These are the important locations in a city. Now, this is an acronym, thankfully. S is social, P is political, E is economic, R is religious, M is military. So these are sort of the five facets that you should be considering in terms of what a town or city has to offer in those particular categories and what locations in the city represent those different categories. So for Boldbrook, things like political and religious are one and the same because it's run by a temple. Social, where do people go to socialize? Like what public spaces are there? Economic, what's the economic driver of that location? There's probably more than one, but there's probably one main one. You get the idea. It's a really great video. And to be honest, I find her stuff extraordinarily insightful. Uh, if you haven't listened to or watched any of her YouTube videos, I really do highly recommend them. So anyways, back to this moral choice. How do I make this particular choice to steal or borrow the bones from the shrine, how do I make it much more difficult? How do I make it unpalatable? Now, since the characters will be strangers in the city, I figured and hope that they will need to make a friend, an NPC ally in the city. So I'm thinking one of these paladins, perhaps a high-ranking paladin captain in the temple, will befriend them and somewhere along the way reveal that he's interested in obtaining dragon bone since someone he knows is working on a cure for the new life affliction and believes that using dragon bone as an ingredient may lead to a successful antidote. I'm hoping it won't take too much for them to work together and the paladin will soon suggest that they take the bones right from the shrine. Again, when there is so much at stake, it's easy to conclude that the ends justify the means. Now let's get into our complications. This paladin is not who he claims to be. He'll be using an assumed name, but in reality this will be Ulrich Bearhart, the heir to the throne of the realm of Ederin. 
The party already suspect that Ulrich conspired with Agarand to get rid of Kalira, and this is correct. Ulrich did make an agreement with Agarand that he could plunder the ruins if he helped get rid of Kalira so that he could reclaim the throne, not knowing at all the consequences of what would happen should Agarand make it underground. Ulrich has no idea about the barrier. He, like many, just assumed that there's wealth hidden deep underground somewhere and that it's dangerous and that Kalira's law to keep people out is just overly cautious. So the party will find out the paladin's true identity somehow, and they will need to decide whether they will agree to work with someone who conspired against the lord that they're all loyal to. Now a little bit about Ulrich, he wants to prove himself to the realm that he is the hero that they need, and he'll do anything to prove it. His father was killed early on in the War of Ashes, and ever since, he blamed Kalira and the metallic dragons for not being at his father's side when they needed to be. So Ulrich has his chip on his shoulder, he's trying to be the bareheart hero that his father never was, and he has a grudge against those loyal to Kalira and who worship the metallic dragons. He thinks himself to be a moral person, but he doesn't really care how he achieves his goals. He only cares about being the one person who writes the history of his own legacy. So you're probably asking, why is he masquerading as a paladin if he has a grudge against people who worship dragons? Well, he does want the dragon bone. He has many of his own followers, and one of his loyalists does think that they can make a cure. So this is an actual possibility. And this will be another part of the dilemma for the players. Do they refuse to help Ulrich, potentially robbing the countless afflicted people of Pharaoh's Point of a cure? And if they do help him legitimately in the game at some point, they will have a cure. And this would be a huge benefit to them once the Mind Flayers make their move in the capital. As I said before in the Behind the Screens episode 4, anyone who has taken the New Life Serum will be susceptible to the mental commands of a Mind Flayer and or the Elder Brain. So having a cure will help the party and their allies deal with a city that is filled with hundreds and hundreds of thralls. One last part of the dilemma, though. He will make sure that the party swears an oath to him. Ulrich believes that Agarand betrayed him and dishonored their agreement, so he wants to get rid of Agarand as well. By creating the cure, he thinks that, that this will inspire people to follow him into battle against the Dragonborn. But he needs to know that the people working with him will continue to support him as Lord of the Realm, just in case Kalira should ever return. After all, he doesn't really know what happened to her. Now, I could make the party roll deception checks, and some would very likely pass. But Ulrich will have a companion with him to cast Zone of Truth to make sure that they mean what they say. So if the party decides to side with him, it will have to be an honest commitment. They will have to be willing to be in it with him to the end. Of course, they'll probably wonder what benefit they might gain from working with him versus working with the temple. Well, each group commands a certain amount of power and certain resources. Ulrich has followers and potentially a cure for new life. He also has the loyalty of many druids and rangers, who harbor a similar distaste for dragons, all dragons, chromatic and otherwise. Being stewards of nature and stewards of the natural world, many druids and rangers see the good dragons as having caused just as much devastation to the natural world as the evil ones. 
So this may present an added complication for Vanna if she decides to side with the temple, she will effectively be siding against her own people. Now, I still have to introduce this dilemma in some way, probably by way of a related NPC. Someone who can communicate to the party that, you know what, a lot of people like Vanna don't like Kalira and don't like the dragons and would prefer the old rulers, the Bearhearts, would prefer for that lineage to come back into power. Now, I've given, I've given the players a lot of reasons to side with Ulrich, despite it being a very difficult choice. There are, there are some very real benefits. The temple, on the other hand, there's, they are still a force to be reckoned with. The clerics and paladins are a strong fighting force, and they have the loyalty of a stone giant who lives just outside of Bullbrook. Lastly, the temple's high cleric is a dwarf, whose family resides in the mountains just north of Boldbrook, where they mine valuable metals. So the temple is flush with magic weapons and armor, as well as enchanted ammunition. And I think having a subterranean-type NPC will make Giladob partial to being friends with the dwarves. So that's basically, in a nutshell, in a very large nutshell, what I have planned for them. Now... If they do side with the temple, they could basically expose Ulrich for who he is. They may try to find this person that's loyal to him, who's making the cure, and try to get them on their side. And if they side with the temple, I'm going to have some more planning to do, because I don't quite know where they're going to get the bones. They will either have to venture into one of these dangerous grave sites, or a deal with the giants. Now, before they even get to Boldbrook, I've got some work to do party has to travel about eight days to get there. Now, I did an entire episode on travel and what a DM can do to make it fun or at least sort of interesting. And I'm going to try to do as much of what I recommended myself. Now, for this part of the adventure, them going outside the city walls, there's a number of things I have to incorporate, a number of goals I want to accomplish. There's additional world building and reinforcing a few ideas, mainly that new life is a threat and spreading outside of the city. Now making the players see this will make Ulrich's promise of a cure seem much more appealing and much more necessary. I need to continue to foreshadow the lurking threat of the Mind Flayers so that when the reveal comes, it isn't totally out of left field. It would almost certainly ruin the campaign beyond salvation if I do not foreshadow the reveal enough beforehand, so this is vital. And also, I need to create goals that are relevant to the characters, and hopefully tie those goals to the larger story. Uh, I don't know that I'll be able to, to talk about those all in great detail right now, but let's talk a little bit about foreshadowing. The main one being the additional sighting of the Gith airships. And now that the party has an artifact belonging to the Mind Flayers of Mind Flayer origin, I see no reason why the Gith can't track them continuously. So maybe there will be a face-to-face -face with the Gith at some point. We'll see how it goes. And as I mentioned in the DM group, I'm wanting to include a brief encounter with the Arcane Academy to give the party a chance to make some new allies. Traveling with a few members of the Academy is a clairvoyant, someone who studied divination magic but who now lives as a sort of precog, seeing sporadic visions of the future. 
Now, this clairvoyant will give the party a cryptic warning about Elwyn. One thing I can say about goals and tying individual goals to the larger story. Play on having Martin ask Gilladob for help. Uh, Agarand has hired a group of assassins to go after Martin. After all, Agarand now knows that Martin is involved. Martin knows the location of Elwyn through their interrogation of Owen the Quick. So Martin is going to ask Gilladob to be on the lookout for any members of this group of assassins. And if they happen to come across them, to find out where the leader of this group is hiding. Now, it's going to be a bit of a dilemma. The leader of the assassins was a former member of the Warriors Alliance uh, that Martin extorted wrongly. But things unfolded, and this former member of the Alliance then turned to evil, was driven to hatred and villainy as a result of Martin extorting him with inaccurate information. So Martin wants Gilladob to keep this from the rest of the group. After all, Spruce is a member of the Alliance, Elasha is a member of the Alliance, and he doesn't know how well they would take it. They found out that he was instrumental, that he had a part in creating this villain. Now, I am planning on introducing, or I'm hoping, to introduce a member of this group of assassins as they journey towards Bullbrook in the form of a traveling bard. This bard knows a little bit about the party. Again, their reputation has grown. Agarand and Arizax know that it was them who killed Mago. So this quote-unquote bard is going to ask the party if if he can camp with them for the night because he doesn't want to be on his on his own because it's not safe. And as payment, he will offer a shiny gold ring. This will be right down Gilladob's alley. I think he'll be eager to accept. But the ring is magical and works as sort of a homing device. The bard will also be overly fond of Faye, and this will definitely win her over almost almost instantly. Of course, there's always the chance that they don't trust this intruder into their campsite. They may perform a successful insight check. They may use zone of truth, and his real intentions will become clear. Again, I may keep this sort of in my back pocket, just depending on how the travel goes. In terms of goals for Spruce, I'm not quite sure what to do. I think if I hint at the Heralds of Ruin, that might be good. But to be honest, I don't know if that's totally necessary. For Vanna, if I can put some dragonborn or large monster in front of her to kill, she will be happy. And Faye is kind of an open book. Maybe she can come across someone from her homeland. I was thinking about calling her homeland Oblivia, because everyone from there is completely oblivious to the outside world, living in this sort of hermetically sealed society. Anyways, I'm going to continue to work on those ideas. If you have any suggestions on that or anything else that I've talked about, feel free to join the Dungeon Master group on Facebook if you already are. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. I think that is all for now. Okay, campaign plan episode number five, done. Let's close out by saying if you are enjoying these episodes, tell a friend, leave a rating, or do none of those things, that's cool. But for now, we're just going to let the outro music take it away because it's so epic. Like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-d